Hello and welcome to Ox Tales, the podcast that serves up stories about history and the foods that make it from the Oxford Food Symposium. I'm your host, Anna Sigrether. Every week on the podcast, we pick one paper from the symposium's long history and bring in its author to help us tell their story. We hope you enjoyed the first episode of our second season last week with fermentation superstar Sandor Katz. You can find that episode and everything you need to know on our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk. Also on our website, if you're able, you can make a donation to support this nonprofit educational podcast. UK listeners can also donate to Oxtails by texting OXTALES20 to 70085. That is O-X-T-A-L-E-S 20 to 70085. Now, on to today's story. As you know, the Oxford Food Symposium has had a long history. It was founded in 1981, and sometimes we like to dig a little farther back into the archives to find our ox tales. Today's story does just this, taking us back to the 2007 Symposium on Food and Morality. And it comes to us from a longtime symposiast, Aylin Onitan. My name is Aylin Onitan. I'm a food writer, researcher, now thinking and writing about food and food politics and food history all the time. Something like that. <laughs> Aylin lives in Turkey. Between Ankara and Istanbul, I'm based in Turkey. And in the year 2000, she was on the jury of an international prize called the Slow Food Award. As a jury member, she was supposed to use her expertise to nominate a person who is keeping regional food traditions alive. We could propose a candidate from elsewhere, from anywhere around the world. But being in Turkey and being familiar with the Turkish cases, uh, I picked the villagers trying to keep the poppy cultivation going as a candidate from Turkey. Aylin decided to nominate an entire village, the village of Ismailkoy, in the Afyon province of west-central Anatolia, who were still growing their traditional crop, the opium poppy. Afyon is the, uh, was the epicenter and still is the opium cultivation in Turkey. Actually, the name Afyon is Afyon, uh, is the uh, Turkish word for opium. So uh, the name of the village was Ismailköy, but uh, as I said, it was one particular uh, village uh, that was still keeping the uh, cultivation going on. Opium poppy, despite its name, is so much more than a drug. It is one of the staple food crops that has been central to a way of life for these Anatolian farmers for thousands of years. And the reason that what these villagers were doing was so notable was that over the past 50 years or so, international pressures to crack down on opiates have led to such intense regulations within Turkey's opium poppy production that it's now at the point where very few people continue to grow it. It has decreased drastically, but the city of uh, the, the province of Afyon, Burdur, Denizli and Eskişehir and Kütahya, I think it makes about five or six uh, provinces, still cultivate poppy, but it's no longer the only crop. So this village and several others like it, even with all the regulations and restrictions imposed, are still growing the opium poppy. Island nominates Ismailkoy, and in the year 2000, they become one of the winners of the Slow Food Award, but Ismailkoy was unique among the finalists. None of them were trying to preserve a traditional food that was also used to make some of the most highly sought-after drugs worldwide. And so the struggle of Ismailkoy leads to the questions, what happens when one nation's food is another nation's drug? And as the world and trade in international commodity crops becomes more globalized, 
Is there a moral consequence for what happens to small farmers caught in the fray? To answer these questions, Aylin explores the almost fairy tale like story of globalization in Turkish agriculture with three items the opium poppy, the sugar beet, and high fructose corn syrup. And we continue with the poppy, which takes us way back into the history of Anatolia. Anatolia, by the way, is the name for the peninsula that makes up the majority of Turkey, a landmass known geographically as Asia Minor. So, opium poppy has always been a source of food for Anatolian people back in Hittite times. The Hittites were contemporary with the Egyptians, uh, so we are talking about uh, 4,000 years from now back. They had this uh, very important agricultural laws, the first legislation actually about uh, vineyards and uh, regulations on trade, everything. So it was a great culture. They were huge poppy cultivators too, fact that is shown in the cuneiform records they left and in the language, one of the origins of modern-day Turkish. The Hittite word for poppy in Turkey is hashika, and this is in Turkish, uh, poppy seed is hashash or hashkesh uh, locally. Hash is giving birth, and shesh is uh, sleep, and the opiate in the pod gives sleep. So it is, if we look at the Latin word for poppy, it is papaver somniferum anatolicum. And somniferum, somni, uh, sleep, and ferum to bring, it is sleep-inducing, sleep-bringing. And anatolicum refers to the, its origins, Anatolia, Asia Minor. The reason the papaver somniferum plant can be used to induce sleep is its unique ability to produce organic chemical substances called opiates the base molecules used to make things like heroin, morphine, and codeine. But, as Island highlights, It has to be said that the seed is not, uh, does not contain the opiate. So it is the opium gum can be only obtained by incising the pod. The only way to extract the actual opiates from the plant is to score the seed pods and let this sticky sap, or opium gum, ooze out, which then gets harvested and processed. The rest of the plant is completely opiate-free, which, if you've ever eaten a poppy seed bagel or pastry, you'll be able to attest to. While it's clear that the narcotic effects of the poppy have been employed by humans for a long time, poppy was grown all across the ancient world, found from Switzerland to China, it wasn't the only alluring thing about the plant. For the Hittites, the poppy had symbolic significance regarding fertility. Hush means to give birth. And hashik means to make sex, like the pomegranate containing many, many seeds. Uh, the poppy pod also contains many seeds. In fact, Eileen has a theory, which she corroborated with a famous expert on Hittite culture, that a lot of the art from ancient Anatolia that depicts a red, round, fruit-like thing on a stem alongside a sheath of wheat and maybe some grapes, those have always been translated as pomegranates, but could actually be poppy pods. And it would make sense, because it is well known that ancient cultures loved making motifs of their cornerstone crops. Wheat, the cereal grain, grapes, the fruit and wine, and poppy, the oil. 
What is good about poppy oil is it's perfectly edible. You can cook with it. You can fry with it. And plant oils are also very much used for illumination, uh, for lubrication, uh, so for many things. For uh, it has almost an industrial aspect, and for paints and poppy poppy oil is very important for painting. In other parts of Turkey, down the coast toward the Mediterranean. Olives were grown for oil, but in Afyon, the terrain was too elevated and too dry for olives. But it was perfect for oil crops like the poppy. And these seed oils are usually either hemp. Hemp is also banned now, and uh, opium. And besides being pressed for oil, poppy seed was used in all kinds of baking, both sweet and savory. Wheat was the other huge crop in ancient Anatolia. The fresh leaves of the plant were eaten raw and steamed like spinach. The crushed hulls of the poppy seed, after pressing for oil, were fed to buffalo, making their cream famously thick and rich. The poppy has been used in almost every aspect of everyday life in Afyon for millennia. So that makes poppy so important for the people of Afyon. Uh, it's it's embedded in their culture. Of course, poppy was also a traditional medicine. The opium gum could be harvested and used in small amounts. You would just take a little bit of uh, uh, the size of a pea or a lentil if your tooth was aching on the spot, so it will numb that area. But the rest of the world demanded the opium gum for the production of more concentrated drugs. So poppy cultivators, taking advantage of this added bonus to their crop, would sell the gum, and throughout the Middle Ages and increasingly into the 19th century, would ship it to the port cities in West Anatolia, where merchants would send it on to be processed into various products and elixirs. Then, morphine was discovered in the early 1800s, and heroin later that century, and the global narcotics trade boomed. By the early 20th century, there started a pretty big international push to crack down on narcotics worldwide, and it was led by the United States. The, the, the Harrison Narcotic Act was established in 1914. Uh, by the United States Congress. And it was uh, calling the control of preparation and distribution of medical opium, morphine, heroin, cocaine, and any, you know, it was trying to control all the uh, drug uh, production. And then uh, it made illegal the possession and the uh, selling of these uh, substances. The Harrison Act was mirrored internationally with the International Opium Convention, which was then later replaced by the UN Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs in the 1960s. For opium-producing countries like Turkey, India, and the Czech Republic, it meant heavy restrictions on crop size and yield, and more surveillance of farmers. And then, the 1970s hit. Young kids who just run up to them, and uh, when we were all boxed in, they were all around, and they're all over our perimeter and we're throwing grenades. In the United States, veterans returning from Vietnam were coming back in huge numbers, many with PTSD and heroin addictions. In 1971, U.S. President Richard Nixon declared a war on drugs, and since at the time 80% of the heroin in the United States originated from Turkish opium, this war included a direct message to Turkey either halt all poppy production or we cut off your aid. So what uh, U.S. said to Turkey uh, was you can no longer uh, grow this uh, plant, which is in a way absurd. I mean, 
you know, don't buy it or don't grow it yourself <laughs> in a way. But I think this was um, more of a political power struggle between Turkey and the U.S., the government of that time. So the Turkish government, who was trying to do what it could to protect its 150,000 poppy farmers and their families, eventually succumbed, imposing a total ban on poppy cultivation in 1972. And for the first time in 5,000 years, there were no white, pink, and lilac flowers dotting the hillsides of Anatolia. Researching the ban, Aylin spoke to the wife of a journalist who visited Turkey right after it was instated. And uh, she told me that, you know, they visited Turkey during that period and they remember that the uh, kind of horror or uh, just a a shocked uh, face. Why? Just asking why. Why why cannot we grow this plant and what, what, what shall we do next kind of thing. The U.S., of course, pledged payments to help the farmers transition to new crops. But you can't replace an entire way of life in one season with cash alone. What were these poppy farmers to do? Well, some of them, well, the the crop uh, introduced as an alternative to poppy was sugar beet. And here we come to the second character in Island's tale. villagers of Afyon never wanted to convert to the sugar beet cultivation, but sustained their own cultivation of poppy seeds. And sugar beet has such an importance in the first economic and political independence of Turkey. Because the Young Turkish Republic was established in 1923. So, uh, think about a country out of the war, completely dilapidated, uh, shrunk to what is Turkey now, but uh, think about the Ottoman territory of a hundred years back. Turkey's borders are much more compact than the former sprawling Ottoman Empire, and the newborn republic, led by its visionary founder, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, had to not only build itself out of the rubble of the First World War, but find ways to replace the key resources lost with the loss of territory. And one of those key resources was sugar. In Anatolia, sugar cultivation, sugar cane cultivation, was not possible geographically. And uh, although it could be done in the southern coast, in the Mediterranean shores, it was not sufficient. With hardly any sugar cane growing territory remaining, Ataturk and his new government realized that they had to do something. So they held an economic congress, where they decided what they were going to do to meet their needs sugar and otherwise. In the Economic Congress, one of the most important um, decisions or declarations made was uh, real independence, political independence, can only come from economic independence. You have to grow your own food and you have to be self-sustained. That's it. It was as simple as that. At the Congress, it was decided. They would grow sugar beet. Sugar beet would grow in regions far too cold for sugar cane. But in order to extract the sugar, you had to process it in factories, a higher tech solution than crushing sugar cane for juice. 
uh, we can say that the establishment of sugar beet factories was the first act of industrialization in food in Turkey. And people started growing sugar beet there, and they started producing their own sugar. Then there there was a chain of state-owned sugar factories established, and I would say in the 40s, 50s, uh, even through 60s, there was this established uh, sugar factories and sugar communities throughout Anatolia. They were also bringing schools, their own uh, cultural institutions and so on. So the engineers and the technical people working for these factories and the, all the villagers around would benefit uh, from uh, this sugar beet cultivation. The lowly beet became a poster child for the successful industrialization of Turkey. So by the time the ban on poppy cultivation came in the 1970s, it was supposed to be an easy fix for farmers. Just grow sugar beet instead of poppy, and swap one crop for the other. It worked in some regions, particularly ones with sugar factories, and not so well in others. Meanwhile, the poppy ban only lasted two years. By 1974, the Turkish government managed to strike a deal with the U.S. to allow poppy cultivation to resume, but only under extremely strict regulation and with the construction of a factory in Afyon province for the immediate processing of the opiates. They have to sell the whole crop to the opiate factory, and the opiate factory extracts the drug part, the uh, the opiate, and gives the seeds back to the producers. And with the seeds you can do anything, either eat them, sell them, uh, make the uh, uh, poppy oil, whatever. But you get back what you need. Even though the ban was lifted, the damage, you could say, was done. Before the ban, farmers in more than 50 of Turkey's 81 provinces grew opium poppy. Today, almost 50 years after the ban, just five provinces do the same. Nowadays, many farmers still grow sugar beet and other cash crops where they used to grow poppy. Very few communities subsist off their poppy crop and use it in the traditional way, for oil, for animal feed, for grains and seeds. And because of the regulations, no one uses it for traditional medicine anymore. The villagers of Ismailkoy, that small village in the province of Afyon that Island nominated for the Slow Food Award, are among the very few people left who are practicing a poppy-based livelihood after decades of international interference. It's a pretty devastating outcome for a way of life many thousands of years old. And this is why Island decided to write about this story for the symposium on food and morality. Not because she wanted to talk about whether or not opium was a moral issue, but because she believes this kind of interference definitely is. Interference with local agricultures has a moral issue, I think, not only in Turkey, everywhere in in the world. But of course, in in a country where in political turmoil and international interference at all times throughout history. Uh, We are used to such things maybe, but you know, I think uh, countries have to really have good agricultural politics and stick to it for their own benefit and try to grow and protect their indigenous plants, uh, traditional agriculture, and what is good for them, what's good for their own environment, And then you can uh, resist to international interference more. 
But in most of these political uh, interferences between the countries, it's not the main issue. You know, if you have many other issues. Uh, it's not only agriculture; it's just one thing, a bargain item. Uh, but the real thing is about the um, weapons and the war and other things. Island says that over the past decades of Turkey's relationship with the United States, there's always been situations where the U.S. uses their economic muscle to nudge Turkey into trade agreements it doesn't want to make. And the latest instance of this has not been about opium, but ironically about the product that replaces it, sugar. And now we come to our third and final character of Island's agricultural saga in Turkey, corn syrup. Now in Turkey, we are in a position to defend sugar beet factories and try to stand against their privatization and high fructose corn syrup. High fructose corn syrup is a highly processed sweetener made almost entirely from genetically modified corn. The United States has steadily increased its corn production over the past decades, subsidizing its growth for biofuel and food additives. Yet the amount of corn that the U.S. produces far exceeds its own demand, especially as U.S. consumption of corn syrup has begun to decline due to public concerns about its negative health impacts. And this means that in order to keep the immensely corn-heavy U.S. industrial farming sector afloat, they need to find new buyers for corn. One potential buyer is Turkey. Turkey does not need to buy sugar, but all of a sudden there's something called high-fructose corn syrup that comes to the, imposed to the country. You don't need it. You don't need it to make your beverages or, uh, how do you say, um, sodas or whatever. And uh, now we are having these um, discussions about having the high fructose corn syrup quota elevated and more high fructose corn syrup and less sugar beet sugar. What's happening is that the sugar beet factories, which have been mostly state-run for the past 75 years, are starting to privatize or close down. And Island reports that in recent years, the U.S. has been coming to Turkey, offering help with international conflicts, if only Turkey will raise its corn quotas, saying something like, Okay, you are in, you're in big trouble here. I'll uh, make life easier on that topic, but uh, close your sugar factories. Deal. Okay, so it's steel. You are in pretty bad condition, I'll make this. Or uh, the conflict in Syria, the conflict in Cyprus, the conflict here and conflict there. Okay, a few um, compensations and deals and uh, all of a sudden sugar factories are gone. Like that. And Turkey is a huge industrial producer of many sugar-containing products. Packaged cakes, biscuits, everything. And they are all in the uh, Middle Eastern, Turkic countries, Asian and uh, especially Central Asian uh, countries. And uh, in Russia, even in Balkans, you see the Turkish products everywhere. So it's no surprise that the U.S. wants a piece of that market, especially considering the decline in demand in the USA. But when Island wrote this paper in 2007, High Fructose Corn Syrup and U.S. interference with Turkey's sugar production wasn't something people in Turkey talked about yet. So it was uh, like, uh, my paper was like the announcement of the uh, hurricane coming. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, and uh, 
these days, nowadays, it's now again, especially two sugar factories, it's all, always on the, how do you say, political debate programs in the TV and so on. And uh, some, uh, how do you say, beverage companies uh, are uh, making ads like, you know, we never used high fructose corn syrup and we will not. We are standing for our own sugar kind of ads that... We see these days. The issue, Island says, isn't that beet sugar, and even poppies, should be protected for their nostalgic value alone. It is that these big international forces are no match for small rural communities, where it sometimes feels like their entire way of life hangs by a thread that can be snipped in a single afternoon's trade meeting. The opium poppy was a potent seed, around which societies formed in Anatolia for thousands of years. But now, after decades of international intervention, that livelihood is as frail as the poppy's thin, papery petals. The beet is, in many ways, going the way of the poppy, threatened by international forces and its cultivators at risk of being tossed into the wind. What are sugar beet farmers going to do when all of the sugar factories finally shut down? Well, they are going to seek for another crop. Or... Uh, then there's this phenomenon of uh, big population of uh, there's agrarian communities, villagers, farming communities moving to bigger cities, this urbanization. I mean, the villagers are diminishing in Turkey and there's, this, there's a boom in urban uh, cities. And then uh, you come across with the uh, problem of urban poverty, which is very different from uh, rural, the poverty in the rural areas. Because in the rural areas, at least you can sustain yourself with food, with, the, with your own food that you grow. This is kind of what globalization is in a nutshell. Countries throw their weight around to get economic advantages, and in the end, the people who carry out the brunt of it are the producers, not the politicians. And the ethics and morals of the matter seem to come down to money. In the 70s, the U.S. did its best to block the entry of one condemned product into its borders, opium. And today it is taking the reverse position by trying to unload another condemned product, from a nutritional perspective at least, corn syrup, onto other countries. So these days, Turkey has become a place where poppies might still grow but are shipped directly to the opiate factory, where the sugar factories are going derelict due to high-fructose corn syrup import quotas, and where political pressures mean that the fertility of the global market is given priority over the fertility of the Anatolian soil and the well-being of the farmers who cultivate it. Thanks for listening to Oxtails. Please subscribe to us, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Huge thanks to today's guest, Aylan Onitan. You can find her symposium paper, The Poppy, Potent Yet Frail, in the 2007 Symposium Proceedings at oxfordsymposium.org.uk slash proceedings slash downloads. You can follow her on all social media at Aylan Onitan. Oxtails is produced by me, Anna Sigrether, and mixed by Thomas Kraus. Editorial oversight is provided by Naomi Duguid and Fiona Sinclair. Our theme music is by Thomas Kraus. Oxtails is made possible both by the Friends and the Board of Trustees of the Oxford Food Symposium. If you like what we're doing and you want to help us make Season 3 a reality, please consider making a donation to our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk, or 
UK listeners can donate £20 by texting the word OXTALES20 to 70085. That is OXTALES20 to 70085. Other music in this episode was by Ava Glendinning, Thomas Krauss, and Uriter. Other sounds accessed via archive.org and freesound.org. Follow the symposium at Oxford Food Simp on Twitter and Instagram at Oxford Food Symposium. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back next week with some more Ox Tales. 